Well, our sermon text for this morning comes from the book of Hebrews. We've been working through the book of Hebrews for some uh, weeks now, and uh, this morning we are in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, so turn with me there, if you would, so we can read that text together. But before we read, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you again asking that you would give us ears to hear. Uh, The writer of Hebrews has repeatedly encouraged us that as we hear your voice, we are not to harden our hearts, but to believe the message of the gospel. Yet, Father, we know that in ourselves, we cannot do this. We need your Holy Spirit, even to enable us to understand your message much more to believe it. And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us now, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe the message of your grace found in your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, maybe I'm just a bit cynical, but it seems to me that very often people are of one of two sorts. Either they care about what's happening to you, but can't necessarily do anything about it, or they could do something, but they don't care. You know, family members care, but they often uh, don't have any real say at your workplace or at your school. They have no pool with the hospital or the admission office and so on. Those who run such offices, on the other hand, well, they have little personal attachment to us. And thus, they have the power to help, but at times, at least, without the will. Knowing the right people at the right time is often the best means of getting the right things done. Again, maybe that's a bit too cynical, but finding someone who is both willing and able to help us in our need is a rare blessing. This phenomenon is not just true in the little things. And so I want to talk this morning about our time of need and God's solution for that and our response. So you can see in the outline in your bulletin, which you can download uh, from our website if you haven't already, our outline is the broken world 
the suffering Savior, and the way forward. Or to put it in the language of our text, why you need a priest, what kind of priest you need, and how you should respond. First, the broken world, why you need a priest. You know, I think few of us today need me to convince them that the world is broken. We live in a moment where that is painfully clear. Things are not what they should be. We live in a moment where many of us are experiencing social and emotional and financial distress. And the reality is, though, that this moment is no worse than any other moment. In fact, at this moment, all this moment has done is unveil the reality that has been there all along. The mask has been torn off, as it were. You see, the truth is, uh, this world is as bad as you feel it is. In fact, it's worse. Of course, it hasn't always been so. I mean, in the beginning, the world was a literal paradise, a place of felicity, as some old preachers used to put it, a place of happiness and joy and delight and satisfaction. God created the world to be a place of enjoyment, enjoyment of him and enjoyment of his creation. The world was made to be hospitable to humankind, and we were intended to flourish as we worked the ground and cared for the animals and loved one another and worshipped God. But something happened. Humanity, instead of looking to God, the creator, as their highest good, began to look to the world itself. See, the original temptation was to think that this world had what people need. And Adam and Eve listened to that lie and so looked to the created order to give them meaning and life. But we were not created to be satisfied with this world. Our dissatisfaction with the world is actually inbred. We were created to find satisfaction not in the creation, but in the creator. It's not the glory of stuff that satisfies, but relationship to the one who in himself is glorious. And here is our our fundamental problem, that we look to creation rather than to the creator. Having ignored God's word, sided with God's enemy, and belittled God's glory, we turned away from the God of life and found death. We became enemies of God and daily experienced his curse upon our sin. Uh, We broke our relationship to the Father, which rippled out into every other area of life. Our relationship even to ourselves began to break down. People often live in mental and emotional anguish, enslaved to desires and passions which destroy their souls. Our relationship to our bodies has begun to break down. Sickness, disease, and death run rampant. Our relationship to the natural order has begun to break down. Tsunamis and tornadoes, hurricanes and famine wreak havoc on our world. Human-to-human relationships have begun to break down. Adam and Eve resorted to blame. The the firstborn child in history killed his younger brother. Anger, strife, theft, adultery, deception, covetousness, war. This world is as bad as you think it is. In fact, it's worse. You know, we tend to think that the world is good and, and bad things just happen in an otherwise good world. And it is true that God did make the world good, and there is residual goodness there. But this good world is fundamentally broken. This present age is characterized by sin and slavery and guilt and condemnation and death. 
And death and slavery are the words that the writer of Hebrews highlights. It's not in our text this morning, but back in chapter 2, verse 15, he talked about the fear of death, which subjects us to lifelong slavery. We all know that we will not live forever, and sometimes we may be able to keep that in the back of our minds, but other times circumstances snap it to the front, and we are jarred awake to the reality that death is ever present. And this leads us to a kind of slavery. For some, that slavery looks like resignation, right? Some of, just, some of us just accept that this world is broken, and maybe, maybe we despair and just give up, and live with a kind of perpetual depression. Or maybe we decide that the only way forward is to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so we binge on Netflix and escape to video games and drown our sorrows in alcohol or sex, whatever will bring us a little happiness in the face of despair. But whether revelry or resignation, our lives are lived in the shadow of death. Now for others, this awareness of death actually leads us to fight back. We do whatever we can to avoid death, avoid thinking of death, talking of death, facing the reality of death. Self-preservation becomes our one goal, and our whole life is consumed with securing our own or, or maybe even others' existence. And so we turn to the saviors of this age. We look to whatever or whomever might be able to fix what is broken. Maybe we look to government to protect us or, or to self-help gurus to fix us or motivational speakers to guide us. Maybe we look to ourselves and our ability to control and manipulate life. Self-discipline and order become our motto. And we say, if only this part of my life will work out, everything will be okay. And so we chase the dream. And we seek to manage and manipulate, managing the brokenness, manipulating other people, trying to ensure that we will feel the effects of this broken world as little as possible. Attempting to insulate ourselves from the residue of the fall. But the saviors of this age cannot help you. Because whatever they might do, they cannot undo the brokenness of the present age. You know, we, we can make things a little better for a short time. But as so many have said, rearranging deck chairs on a Titanic has never been an effective strategy for change. Sin has broken this world, and there is no one who can put it back together. Scripture, in fact, puts it like this. In the light of the brokenness and sin of this present age in Isaiah chapter 59, which Scott read earlier, we read this. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. And of course, this moves us. It moves us from the broken world to the suffering Savior. What kind of priest you need? And with the brokenness of this present age, we, we need someone who can put things right. We need someone who can do more than just make adjustments, right? Putting a Band-Aid on a cut when you have cancer may keep the cut clean, but it will not fundamentally help your situation. Nothing has changed. We need more than band-aids on boo-boos. We need someone who can not just make our burden a little lighter. We need someone who can bear our burden and bring relief from the toil of this present age. And there is one. 
as Isaiah said. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no man. And he wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought salvation. See, there is one who has come to stand in the gap and make things right. It is the Lord. And this one has been appointed to stand in the gap by God himself. See, we don't know it, but uh, what we need as we endure the troubles of this age, as we face death and fight the futile battle of self-preservation, what we need is a priest. You know, priests in the Old Testament were mediators. They were like legal arbiters who stand between two parties to make things right. Except they, they didn't just stand between any two parties, but between humanity and God himself. And this is the way God set things up, right? That priests were kind of like a court-appointed attorney who worked on your behalf. This is the way the writer of Hebrews describes them in verses 1 through 4, when he says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. See, God, seeing us in our misery, knowing that the root cause of our misery is our alienation from him, chose and called and appointed priests to act on our behalf in relation to him to offer up gifts and sacrifices for sins. And this is ultimately what God has done in the person of Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews goes on in verses 5 and 6 and says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Hebrews quotes two verses there, one of which we've seen already in our study of Hebrews. Hebrews has quoted Psalm 2 to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son, exalted to the right hand of the Father, greater than the angels in heaven. But the point here is that the same God who said, you are my Son, to Christ at the resurrection, also said, you are a priest forever. Jesus is our, our court-appointed court attorney with the Father. He acts on our behalf in relationship to our God. Now, again, uh, maybe you think, okay, who cares? But what we need to see is our relationship to God is the fundamental issue of life. Right? We, we are so focused on the problems around us that we forget the root of every problem, right? The brokenness of this age stems from our broken fellowship with the Father. But though we turned our back on God in the garden, he has not turned his back on us, but he is for us in the person of his Son. And so God appointed Jesus as our great high priest. Now, what exactly is it that Jesus does? Well, he willingly came to suffer as a man in our place. When Hebrews lays out that the general duties of priests, it says in verse 1 that, that they, they were to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
And he picks this up in verses 7 and 8 with reference to Jesus, where he says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. See, what Jesus did as our high priest was first and foremost identify with us. He came in solidarity with his people. And so he came in the flesh. Uh, John says the word became flesh. And Paul says Jesus was manifested in the flesh. And the phrase flesh points to the brevity of life. Psalm 73 says that God remembered that we were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Isaiah 40 says, all flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. In fact, the phrase, the days of his flesh, emphasizes how brief Jesus' life was. Not years, but days. You see, the flesh here is not bad, but it is weak and temporary and fading away. To look on, Jesus took on flesh and blood, the weak and temporary things of this age. And in that flesh, he suffered. And in that suffering, he cries out to his father as the only one able to save. And, and think about that for a moment, right? Whatever you might be going through, whatever trouble, whatever trial, and whatever situation, you might cry out to God, save me from this. And Jesus came into the world to become like us, to experience just such weakness and trial that he too might know what it is like to cry out to God in anguish. We see this frequently in the Gospels, Jesus weeping at the brokenness of this age, Jesus crying out to his Father. Hence Jesus' sympathy with us, as we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus came to suffer in our place, and so he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now, you might think someone coming to, to put things right in a world full of injustice and oppression, that, that he might come to kick butt and take names, that he might come to set things right with an iron fist. But in his mercy, this is not the way Jesus came the first time. He came first to identify with us in our sin and to sympathize with us by suffering in our place for our sin. Now, there is this great phrase about Jesus' suffering in verse 8. It says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, you might wonder, why did Jesus need to learn obedience? Well, the, the point is this. First, as a man, of course, as God incarnate, Jesus had to learn everything that any person has to learn, right? He grew in wisdom, Scripture says. But what does it mean to learn obedience through suffering? Well, we could put it like this. Obedience or submission, when it is easy and comfortable, is not a real test of our obedience. Obedience is tested when it is hard and confusing and painful. And although Satan right, was clearly wrong in the book of Job, 
his accusation gave God the opportunity to demonstrate the obedient faith of Job. Job's tenacious faith would not have been demonstrated as fully under his previous circumstances. In fact, it could not have been demonstrated as fully. It is when the way of obedience involves suffering that the depth of that obedience is shown. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. He came to understand what obedience really means when he obeyed his father, even when it was difficult. Now, we should certainly note for ourselves, what what are you learning through coronavirus? What are you learning through this time? What are you learning about uh, yourself? Are you learning to bear up under the providence of God? Are you learning to obey even when it's hard? Are you learning that, that true obedience means doing God's will even when there's no immediate happy outcome in sight? And yet the writer of Hebrews is not uh, bringing up the fact that Jesus learned obedience to moralize. Far from it. In fact, he brings it up to say, through that process of learning obedience, Jesus has been made perfect, verse 9, and become the source of eternal salvation. And so Jesus is now able to save. Now, there's something interesting that I didn't notice last week. The Hebrews never says that Jesus shares our weakness, but that because of his suffering, he can sympathize with our weakness. It's a slight difference. Now, Paul does does talk about Jesus dying in weakness, so that wouldn't be wrong to say. But when Hebrews talks about weakness, it seems to include in that the weakness of sin. Uh, So hence, uh, verses 2 and 3, he can deal, speaking of the uh, the human high priest, the the, the regular high priest in the Old Testament, the Aaronic high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. See, because he is beset with weakness, he must offer sacrifice for his sins. In fact, the writer seems to be very careful about the language he uses here. Back in chapter 415, again, he said, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses because he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He doesn't say Jesus is weak, but that he sympathizes with our weaknesses because of his temptation. And back in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he said, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The line of similarity is suffering and temptation. And finally, the writer will come back to this in chapter 7, where he says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, every other high priest shares in the weakness of sin. Jesus became like us in every way, except sin. 
And he, far from being weak in that sense, has been made perfect. Now, don't mishear me. Of course, Jesus took on flesh, right? He experienced genuine human weakness, suffering, and temptation. But with this key difference, he was without sin. In fact, he became perfect. Now, what does it mean that Jesus became perfect? I mean, Jesus was always sinless, but he became perfectly suited to be our Savior. The word has the sense of to perfect or to accomplish or to complete. And this is the way the word is used elsewhere. In uh, Jesus said in Luke 13, I, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. John 4, 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 19, uh, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, a word with a similar root, all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? It means that through suffering, he became perfectly suited to be our Savior. Because apart from suffering righteously in our place for our sins, he could not save. See, Jesus came to do what Adam failed to do in the beginning and to undo what Adam did. Adam disobeyed in the place of comfort and ease, but Jesus has obeyed in the place of suffering and death. And in doing so, Jesus has become for us the perfect Savior. He became like us, and so he sympathizes with our weaknesses, but he was not like us in our sin. And so where we fail, he succeeded. Where we turn from God in our suffering, grumble and complain and resort to self-preservation at all costs, he turned to his Father. And even in his distress, he said, my God, my God, and finally into your hands I commit my spirit. And so Jesus obeyed to the point of death, even death on the cross. And through that death, he became our perfect Savior. And of course, this was not and could not have been the end. Jesus did not merely come to sympathize and to suffer. He did that, but that was not the end. The writer says in verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he heard, he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus sympathized, suffered, and was saved from death. That didn't mean he didn't die, but that he was saved out of death in the resurrection. God regularly, throughout Scripture, we see and experience in our lives, God regularly saves at the last moment when all human hope is lost. God saved Israel through the Red Sea when they had an army behind them and a sea before them. God saved Jonah out of the belly of the whale. God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace. God saved Daniel out of the lion's den. The great shepherd of the sheep does not promise that we won't go through the valley but he does promise to be with us and to bring us out. And so Christ went into the grave, but came out again on the other side. Jesus being saved from death has become the source of eternal salvation. He has received salvation from the Father, the only one able to save from death, and so he can now offer salvation to us. 
Note this word eternal, eternal salvation. It does not merely mean forever. Rather, it means partaking of another kind of life altogether. See, all of those other salvations that I mentioned, which God's people of old experienced, were salvations in this life, in the present age. But Jesus was saved out of the present age and brought into the age to come when the Father raised him from the dead. He now holds out not a, not a better life, not your best life now. Rather, he holds out participation in a whole new age, the age to come. We can partake of that now by the gift of the Spirit, but it is an age to come when Christ will return and we too will rise from the dead as he has, when we will be finally saved from death to die no more. That is our hope that Jesus in his resurrection has overcome this broken world, being saved out of this broken world to restore this broken world on the last day. This is the priest that we need, one who can bear the brokenness of this present age and come through that he might bring us through to the age to come and the restoration of all things. Here is one, finally, who is willing to help as one who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, And he is also able to help, having been made the perfect Savior through his obedient suffering. So that's the broken world, the suffering Savior, and finally the way forward, how you should respond. For many, the story of Jesus seems like a a nice story, one who loved us so much. He came to bear our sin, to die in our place, to rise from the dead, to bring about a whole new world, holding out the hope of resurrection life to all who believe in him. It's a nice story, but now what? I mean, how do I participate in that story? Verse 9 says, Jesus has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, what does it mean to obey him? In the context of Hebrews, Jesus has only laid on us one demand at this point, and that is the demand to listen. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, the Father has spoken to us through his Son. Hebrews 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay close close attention to what we have heard. That is the message declared by the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 3, verse 1, therefore consider Jesus, and do not harden your heart when you hear God's voice. And chapter 4 exhorts us, believe the message of the gospel of God's Son, and so enter God's rest. Fundamentally, obeying Jesus here means believing the gospel of Jesus, the good news of his death and resurrection for sin. But of course, it also means obeying him and everything he says, whatever the difficulty may be. Remember, that is the test of our obedience. Jesus learned obedience through suffering, and our obedience is tested when we suffer. Now, we will not do that perfectly, right? We will never do what Jesus did. We're we're not called to do exactly what Jesus did. But though we cannot do the work of Christ, we are called to follow the way of Christ. That means we face suffering, crying out to one who can save us from death. And knowing that he will, not because we are reverent and holy and good, but because Jesus was and is and always will be. Knowing this, of course, means that we can be freed from fear because death no longer has a claim on us. We belong to the one who has conquered death. He rose, we will rise. 
And whether we face the armies of Egypt or the fiery furnace of Babylon or the whale's mouth or the lion's den or the martyr's cross or the valley of the shadow of death or financial hardship or coronavirus, we have hope that Jesus will be with us and bring us through. And whatever hardships we face now, he will raise us up on the last day. That is our hope, that death does not have the final word. Of course, being freed from death means we're freed from the fear of death. Being freed from fear means we are free from slavery. Self-preservation no longer needs to be our, our guiding principle in life, which means uh, being freed from fear, we are freed to serve. This came up in uh, last night in the panel discussion on coronavirus, that through the gospel, we are freed to serve. And so you can ask yourself right now, what do the people around you need? What do the people around you need right now that you can offer? Here's one thing. Who do you know who needs to hear about this freedom from the fear of death? Who do you know who is weighed down by the brokenness of this age and needs to hear that there is one who has overcome? Why don't you tell them? Tell them about the suffering Savior. Tell them about our great high priest. And encourage them to read the book of Hebrews. Maybe offer to read through it with them over Zoom, right? Send them a link to the sermon, right? Whatever you might do to share the hope that we have in the face of the trials that we experience. The world is broken. But we have a suffering Savior who has overcome Jesus, our great high priest. He is both willing and able to help. Listen to him, be free, and serve to his glory. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that you did not abandon Jesus to the grave, but you raised him from the dead on the third day. And that in his resurrection, we see that you saved from death. And we know that in him, you will save us from death. We thank you for the hope that we have in him and the hope of the resurrection and the hope of new life and the hope of this world being put back together and all things made new. We pray, Father, that you would increase that hope in us and that we as your people would overflow with hope, that others would see, and that they too would come to know the hope that we have in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.